is Friday, June 8th, 2018, time for episode 52 of the Barnhart Podcast. For the opening of the last couple shows, I've given an update of the medical conditions over at my house. Anne, can you hear me? Huh? Speak up! So you you mentioned on the podcast, or not the podcast, on the blog, that uh, you had a a perforation of your eardrum, and somebody wrote in with with, uh, advice about how you were very lucky that the eardrum didn't explode internally, because that that could have led to uh, instant death and whatnot. And you mentioned that uh, your other eardrum had had perforated, so they're going to have to reply in all caps so you can hear them. Um, and that was, that was fun. And the person actually in good sport replied that, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, quite hard on the fingers to, uh, reply in all caps. How are you doing? Oh, you know, it's going to take a long time and I'm deaf as a post, but, um, you know, I've got my, my headphones on and the volume all the way up and the, the worst thing about it, there's no pain or anything like that. And, um, I did, I did throw in the towel and I did something that I haven't done in almost 20 years. And when the second, when the other ear, eardrum perforated, I say, okay, I'm not going to mess around with this. And I did go to the walk-in free clinic thing. And I did get a course of, of antibiotics, mild antibiotics, not nuclear strength or anything. Cause again, I haven't taken antibiotics in almost 20 years, but I said, I'm not going to mess around with this. <laughs> and so I took, I did a course of antibiotics and a course of steroids. The ear, nose and throat doctor that was there said, it's almost more important to do the steroids to make sure that the, um, the, uh, inflammation and the swelling goes down and all of that. But I haven't been in any pain. It's just the inconvenience of having your ears blocked up and the weirdness of like being able to hear fluids sloshing around inside of your head. Um, and it, it is hard to sleep at night and there's insomnia that goes along with it because not only can I hear myself breathing, but when I'm in bed and I'm laying very, very still, I can hear my, my pulse and it kind of, it, it keeps you awake. So, um, but I mean, if this is the worst thing that ever happens to me, I mean, there's absolutely nothing to complain about. It's all good and it'll take about another, I, ta- I anticipate it'll take an, at least another month for the tympanic membranes to heal and grow back and I'll just be I'll just be a deaf old woman in the meantime, kind of kind of preparing for old age here, getting a little dress rehearsal in. Yeah, there's not, nothing like the, the present to prepare for the future. Um, Indeed. Another another email somebody sent in. Uh, I made a comment about the Germans being so particular and fastidious about following every law that if somebody made a law about going out and, and um, sweeping the streets at four o'clock, I had heard a story and I could not place it where and what the details were in, in my mind. And and uh uh, MS in, in uh, the South United States emailed me and said, yes, in Germany, house owners had to sweep the sidewalk in front of their streets. The requirement was once a week. And he remembers when he was a boy of seven or eight years old, when he visited his mom's family, they, his grandma would make him go out and sweep the street. And, and uh, so I, I knew there was, there was some vestigial reference to the Germans by law having to sweep something. Uh, I couldn't remember all the details about it, but uh, <laughs> Thank you, thank you, MS from down south, uh, filling in the details on that. And it just goes along with saying that for the most part, if, if there is a law, the Germans are going to follow it. And it's too bad that, you know, if people are making bad laws, they follow those too, unfortunately. Uh, that's kind of the problem, not being able to discern. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. So at, at least at least the French have that going for them, that if they have somebody who's 
Actually, you know, I take that back. I was going to say if, if the French had a Hitler type person in charge, they might ignore them. But there was the whole French Revolution, so I'm not sure that's a valid yeah, thing to say. There was there was that that little unpleasantness, and then there was also a, a little short man. What was his name again? Oh a, yeah, a little Italian, a little Italian chap that when it went and caused all kinds of trouble. Something in good part was it, or Bonaparte. Bit torn bit apart? apart. I don't know. Torn, he, torn apart. Torn apart. That's it. He, he, yeah. Anyway, okay, <laughs> we actually have notes for tonight. Uh, so where do you want to start? We have a, we have a whole bunch of things. We have uh, envy. We have celebrity suicides. Memorial Day. Where do you want to start? Uh, the naval thing. I think that's really interesting. Um, you sent me that that piece about how, and I think this was this made it into Drudge and mainstream that you know they they kind of test audited the Navy and found that the the preparation level of the United States Navy was like. 20% or something like that. And you, you being, uh, an ex Navy man, I thought you might have some, uh, some thoughts to share and some in, insights on all that for the listenership. And I find it a, a fascinating topic. Well, it has been over 20 years since I have stood a bridge watch at sea. And, uh, yeah, I, I did, I think I sent you the link on that and it was, it was something that somebody sent me and, and, um, it, it, it's, you know, when we, we talked about the Fitzgerald last year and, and the collision they had off the coast of Japan. Mm-hmm. And um, my my opinion at the time, and I remember getting some email uh, saying, hey, you're, you're being really critical of the Navy. I can't believe that you'd be doing this as, as, a, uh, as a veteran. But yeah, I stood the bridge watch, I don't know how many times, uh, not just out at sea, but also in, in uh, close, to, close to shore when you, you're supposed to be hyper vigilant about everything going on. And uh, I, I I seem to recall saying that this this was on the on the bridge crew they they screwed up and pretty badly at that point, um, and and so yeah so the uh, surface warfare command the, the surface warfare officer school the, these the, the the school in the navy that trains all the officers who are going to go out to serve on ships at sea, they did a spot check they grabbed 164 officers who were first tour. Um, officers who had been officer of the deck qualified and officer of the deck. If you not, are not familiar with being Hayes grain underway, these are the guys who, when the ship is at sea stand in place of the captain on the bridge um, at any given hour of the day. Um, there are two officers on the ship who, who by right can walk onto the bridge and say, I've got the deck, get out of the way. And mm-hmm. saying I, I have the deck means I can I can tell you where the ship's going to go. I can order the course and speed. I can you know deploy things and you know, make the ship do things. Um, so the officer of the deck stands in place of the captain. It's a it's a pretty important thing. And you don't have to be a particularly senior officer to qualify to to stand the officer of the deck watch. You just have to qualify. And in theory, you should um, properly qualify and be able to handle all of the situations that would that would come about. Uh, that a ship at sea would have to uh, would have to deal with. So the Surface Warfare Officer School grabbed 164 officers at random from the fleet and gave them a a test that you know would would uh, quantify whether or not they could handle all of the situations that uh, a, a standard officer of the deck at sea would would have to deal with. 164 officers tested, only 27 passed with no concerns. Ooh, that's bad. You know, that, <laughs> that's really bad. That's grounds for court martial because that's 137 people who had their feelings hurt that they didn't pass and that that all they had was a, a participation trophy. You know, actually, I'm I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. Yes, that that is very bad. It should be 164 out of 164 should pass that thing. 
Because if you are a more senior officer on the boat or the captain or the executive officer, or for crying out loud, a, a, a an enlisted person uh, who stands watch on the bridge and you know somebody is trying to qualify for officer of the deck and this person doesn't have it, you need to raise your voice and say, look, this person, Mr. Smith, Mr. Roberts, Mr. or Ms. as the case may be, doesn't mm-hmm. have it. And if, if they're going to stand watch, even if I don't have the duty, I'm going to come up here and, and you know be vigilant because I don't trust that I'm going to live if this person is up here. I mean, it's, it's not, well, I was going to say that's a little more dramatic, but 17 people did die in two collisions because people on the bridge crews didn't know what the heck they were doing. They couldn't stay out of the way of commercial shipping. Commercial ships are huge. They paint huge radar signatures. And, and this is, you know, this is one of the things that the, the officers were tested on was could you use the civilian and military radars that are available to you on the bridge to identify shipping and stay away from them? It, it's not that difficult. It's really not that difficult. Ships are, even the, even the most lumbering Navy ships, not, not counting aircraft carriers, they're pretty agile. I think I made the the comment in the last time we talked about this that the average warship is like a um, a sports car, and it's like trying to ram a, a sports car with with a with a, a cement mixer truck. Mm-hmm. You know, the even the most um, mediocre driver can get out of the way of a, a get a, get out of the way of one of those trucks unless you aren't paying yeah. attention whatsoever, and that's really what seems to be the case in in, in this in this situation. And the, the question that doesn't seem to be asked is, okay, so if these people, these officers who were standing at the bridge watches were not qualified for basic seamanship to stay out of the way of other ships, what were they trained on? What was mm. wasting all their time? Mm-hmm. Now, like I said, it's been over 20 years since I've been in the Navy and observing officers being trained for qualifications. And I seem to recall that the, the primary training they had was, you know, general seamanship. What are the rules of the road? What do you do when these circum these situations at sea? Um, this scenario of a boat suddenly changing course towards you, what do you do? I don't seem to recall, even though it was the era of don't ask, don't tell, don't pursue, we didn't have gender sensitivity training concerns and things like that. I don't know if that all accelerated in 2009. Well, I mean, I think... I don't think it's so much. I mean, obviously, they're being indoctrinated with all that that sodomite and transsexual crap. But I don't think that it's the sodomites per se that are probably the problem in terms of confidence, uh, in terms of competence, precisely because sodomites actually do tend to be of above average intelligence. Narcissists tend to be of above average intelligence. I think the issue here is more along the lines of race and sex. It's a, you hit on it, putting, putting women, this, this absolutely insane um, imperative to put women in positions that, frankly, women have no business being in, and then also elevating based on racial quotas and, you know, just stuff like that, generally elevating people into these positions who are not qualified because, you know, any sense of, of meritocracy is just gone because the, the military, certainly it's a lot worse over the course of the Obama Obama you know, regime and all of that. But let's be honest, this has been going on since Carter. This has been going on since probably even before Carter. This has probably been going on, let's be honest, since Johnson or even Kennedy, that the the seeds of this started to creep in (coughs) and started to fester. So, um, you know, yeah, I think they're wasting people's time, obviously, instead of training them 
how to how to do the skill sets that are obviously needed people are just being indoctrinated with you know pop psychology and social justice warrior nonsense and exactly the same thing could be said about the seminaries you know what what in the hell these these guys come out and they're ordained after seven years of seminary training and they you know a, a non-trivial percentage of them can't name the three persons of the triune godhead and you say what 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 are they doing what are they doing for seven years well all kinds of stupid crap that is wrong and bad and nobody has any business doing much less much less people training for you know the United States Navy or or any sort of military position but I think the problem is more of a problem of race-based um, affirmative action type stuff and obviously of, of females putting put, putting women in positions they have no business being. Women tend to not be very good leaders. Believe me, I am one. I've seen it. Women with true leadership skills are so rare that the the percent representation that they have, not just in the military, which is insane, but, um, you know, in the corporate world and so on and so forth, the number of women who actually have the the what it takes, you know, the, who have the true grit to actually be put in a position of leadership is so small that you just look at the percentages and I'm thinking that there should be, you know, 50% female representation in corporate governments in corporate governance or 50% female representation in military leadership. This is insane. This is absolutely insane. And I think this is all a function of that. What do you think? Well, Again, 20 years ago, 21 years ago, whenever it was I got out of the Navy, it, it was just about the time when the combat ships were starting to be integrated with with uh, mixed female-male crews. I was not on a ship that uh, had anything like that. Um, but on, on both of the ships on which I served, we did on, on I did one deployment each on both of them, and on both of them we did have uh, a female pilot. Uh, so we had a female pilot on the second cruise. We had two female pilots on, on the first cruise. And these were helicopter pilots, and uh, you know, all, notwithstanding all the stereotypes about female drivers, they they were fine. They were just as good as the the male pilots, as far as we as far as we could tell. And uh, they brought a couple of female maintainers on board, so I I can't really speak to the whole idea of uh, whether or not the you know bringing females into a, a leadership position uh, affected anything there. I don't know. Uh, we had certainly no problem in terms of race in, in, in terms of the, the officers who were on the, on the both ships, there's a good mix of races, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, uh, they were all really solid sailors. Now I would say this at the point in time when I was in, which, okay, this is not hard math, middle of the nineties. Um, you'd had, this is post Reagan buildup. So you'd have the, the Clinton drawdown for several years, the people who really want to be in or who are really qualified to want to stay in who were in the pipeline already, you had pretty qualified people. Plus this is surface Navy. This isn't the glitzy, uh, you know, going for the pilots and, and, and things like that. Uh, we, uh, briefly mentioned on a previous podcast, uh, the case of Kara Holtgreen. She was one of the first, uh, female F-14 pilots, and there was a lot of political pressure at the time, post tailhook, to get a female fighter pilot into the fleet as a, a active combat pilot. So there was political pressure there. There's no political pressure on the Black Shoe Navy to get females and minorities integrated in because that's not the most glamorous thing in the world. Um, it'd be more glamorous to get people into the Navy SEALs, but again, the Navy SEALs are are more elite and sufficiently 
um, they'll, they'll push back because they, they realize they go into life and death situations. And so in training, they will not pass anybody who they don't trust to actually go into combat with. So in terms of surface warfare, not the most glamorous thing. They tend to not have a lot of weight placed upon them in terms of political correctness. Now, not that long after I got out of the Navy, 9-11 happens. And there was a general military buildup. We deployed, you know, the military deployed uh, going overseas. And so probably more people got in at that point, And there was, a, I guess, a bloating of the ranks. I, you know, I've seen commentary saying that, that um, general discipline at sea in terms of training and, and uh, general seamanship and doing all the normal things the Navy is supposed to do training in peacetime kind of went out the window around 2003, 2004. And then the era of really uber political correctness started about 2008, 2009. I can, I can see some of that. I don't know what the actual, you know, if there's somebody listening who, who knows more about this, by all means, uh, email me, uh, sailor or no squid at supernerdmedia.com. And I'll, I'll talk to you about this because I'd, I'd love to learn more about this as well. I mean, when I was getting out, we still had paper charts. And I, and I think we switched to digital shortly after I got out. So um, I can speculate on things like what's going on right now. But kind of like what I, what I said last year when I first looked at this, like somebody was not paying attention. I mean, just really basic things. I remember when we would do... Uh, war games at siege off off the coast of California, there was always one person on the bridge and at least one person in combat information center who was not part of the drill, who was watching the real world picture of the radar to make sure we didn't accidentally drive into a boat that was out Mm -hmm. there who was not part of our war game. Because when you're doing these war games, you put, you superimpose onto your radar screens, all these fake contacts that don't really exist in the real world. And so there's gotta be somebody who's looking at a real picture that doesn't have all that stuff on it to say, uh, sir, we're about to run into a real ship out here at 500 yards. Uh, so it, knowing that and having watched these people do their job and it's, it's not hard. Um, I look at the situation of of like the, uh, the Fitzgerald and the John S. McCain. It's like, how do you run into a ship at sea, especially Mm -hmm. a big commercial ship? Yes, it's at night, but these things are lit up. The Navy ships are the ones that aren't lit up at night. How do you run into them unless you have gross incompetence? Um, you're just not paying attention. I, I really don't get it. And, and I don't, and, and I don't understand that, how there are not proximity alerts. I mean, isn't it at this point? Isn't a lot of it very much just like playing video games? And isn't this young generation of people, aren't they supposed to be manually dexterous and have hand eye and be able to, you know, interact with with screens and so forth that are showing uh, proximities and and multiple targets moving and so forth. Yeah, I mean it's it's this it's the sort of thing where it's almost so hard to believe that it's incompetence that it does lead people to come up with all kinds of conspiracy theories. That's and a, in this case, that's exactly I, where I was going with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of of it being the first one with the Fitzgerald, and it was a Filipino flag ship that that uh, rammed them. Now, the Fitzgerald was doing strange maneuvers; they didn't know what they were doing, and figured it out about eight seconds before they had impact, and tried to do some radical maneuver. And the and the the, the ship that hit him was trying to maneuver out of the way. But there was there was this whole theory that it could have been the um, uh, the Islamic. Uh, there, there, there are some Al Qaeda affiliated cells on on on, uh, on on the Philippines, and the theory being that their sailors took over that ship and tried to ram a U.S. ship. Yeah, so you're going to go after a random Arleigh Burke boat by chance, by you know target of opportunity at, at sea, if you can take over a ship. That doesn't make any sense, right there. I mean, if, if I if I was a Muslim cell and I could take over a boat and do some damage with it, I think I'd go after a flat top. I wouldn't go after. 
I wouldn't yeah. go after a cruiser or yeah. actually it's a destroyer technically. But, um, you know, so, so, but the, the point that this just does, does not make sense certainly gives rise to, you know, whether it's uh, GPS uh, jamming or signal jamming or wh- whatever. I, I remember seeing about seven or eight different conspiracy theories, uh, North Korean submarines. I mean, it was all kinds mm-hmm. of strange crap coming up on, on, on the interwebs on that stuff, but it, it's, in in lieu of anything making sense, the the human brain tries to make connections where they don't logically exist, which is the whole genesis for conspiracy theories in general. Mm-hmm. But nothing really makes sense here. I mean, honestly, if, if you're listening and you do know something about the state of seamanship in the Navy right now within the last uh, five or ten years, by all means, email into the show, and and I'd love to learn more. Just as somebody who who used to do this, who wore the uniform, and and um, almost thought about doing this for twenty years, so. Well, I think I think it all speaks to the overarching concept of, you know, um, Americans need to get need to be able to manfully confront the fact that all of these um, bubbles are basically being burst. Um, The military is not. while, While certainly the American military is extremely strong in absolute terms and and probably still in comparison to you know the chinese whatever's left of of the russian military etc cetera, etc cetera. Oh, we I'm certainly saying, have the best hardware of any military in the world yeah, i'm not saying we don't have the best hardware and you know we don't have all kinds of firepower but in terms of just competence and competence and you know pure motives and doing the right thing and, you know, actually wanting to win wars. I I don't think the United States has actually wanted to win a war since World War II. Everything since World War II has just been a, a grinding, a grinding continuation of conflict um, in, in order to enrich the, what, what, you know, is called and has been called for many decades now, the military industrial complex. Yes, I absolutely believe that. And I think looking back in in retrospect, precisely because we have the hardware that we had that, you know, you, you go into Afghanistan and you're getting, you're getting your ass kicked up one side and down the other by a bunch of literal retards, literal retards. And, and you just, you just can't finish that one off. Huh? Why not? Why can't, why can't anything ever be finished off? Also the, just the overall competence are our fighting men. Do they have even a fraction of the common sense, the masculine potency, virility, the able to, the ability to think, the ability to act, the, the ability to improvise the way that the average private first class grunt in world war one or world war two had, you know, that sort of ability. Well, no, obviously not. You look at the broad culture, you look at, you look at men and young men today and they're just basically helpless. Why do you think that it's any different when, when you go into the military and then, you know, there was the idea that, being career military and being an officer and, you know, going up, going up the chain and, and having a career in the military, that that was, you know, that was an impressive thing for a man to do. Not anymore, not anymore. The best and brightest, sadly, this is, and this is terrible. The best and brightest in, in the United States and in the Western world do not 
do not go into the military and say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a, I'm, I'm going to climb the chain and I'm going to be a, maybe even retire as a full bird colonel or maybe even as a general. No, nobody, nobody thinks that way anyway. It's kind of a refuge now for, you know, mediocrities who, who couldn't quite hack it in, in the private sector otherwise. Um, not the most impressive group of people in this day and age aspiring to high level military careers. And it didn't used to be that way. Uh, you know, it used to be that 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 was a really awesome, impressive, high level thing for a man to do. And it just isn't the case anymore. And I think we're seeing this also right now, big bubble being burst in terms of law enforcement. Look at the FBI. I mean, look at what the FBI is just on a daily basis being exposed as being it's it's just a clown show it's a bunch of it's a bunch of damn narcissist hacks of of average at best intelligence who are populating this organization and you, you know the the whole g-men thing and the the whole mystique that surrounded the FBI and J Edgar Hoover who was almost certainly a sodomite by the way um and all of that that that's just gone. The, nobody, it, the FBI, the CIA, these things need to be disbanded. Not not just because morally, <coughs> they're so far gone, it, but because they no longer have any uh, among anyone of any intelligence. These organizations are a joke. They no longer demand any respect from from any serious person out there in the world um you tell me you're an fbi agent and i'm like oh well you know what did you flunk out of pre-med or you know what's the deal did you flunk out of law school why did you end up in the fbi so you know it's kind of sad but having all these uh, these bubbles burst right and left as our culture descends and i think these are a couple of manifestations of it military and law enforcement well, in terms of you made the comment about uh, our military getting their butts kicked up one side and down the other in Afghanistan and uh, or Iraq or any place else for that matter within the last fifteen years since the war on terror began, mm-hmm. there is a a definite bifurcation of of the military between the the standard military and the special ops. And very early on in in the the war on terror, the the special ops uh, joint special operations command took the leading role in in doing a lot of the work in Afghanistan and. By themselves, the the uh, the CIA teams and and the Army Special Forces took the entire north of Afghanistan. Uh, a couple of of Army Special Forces teams, combined with Delta and and some other special operators, took most of the south and almost caught Bin Laden at the Khyber Pass in, into um, uh, Pakistan. And so there there's been this this hybrid this bifurcation where the the high speed operators come in and, and do their thing. And they've got all the best equipment, all the best intelligence, and they they'll they'll swoop in and, and take up you know pick up some high value targets, and that ticks off all the local uh, jihadis who then find the local uh, marine or army non special operators rolling through on patrol the next day and shoot them up. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of there's 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 almost two militaries in the field at this point. So. Uh, when you talk about uh, people getting getting their butts kicked up one side and down the other, we don't have a cohesive plan. It, it's not yeah. that it's not that these it's not that the standard and special ops can't co- uh, can't coordinate. It's that they don't because one one thinks they're so much better than the other. This gets back into the whole idea of narcissism. The special operators don't have to communicate with the with the uh, the, the vanilla forces. Um, 
you know, if, if they can't defend themselves, oh, well, sucks to be you. We're the special guys. I mean, not all of them think that way. Most of them probably don't, but there's enough of them that that, that is what really happens. I mean, people get shot because, you know, the, the snake eaters come in one day, grab their guy, and it, it, it kicks the hornet's nest, and they come take it out on, on people who, you know, the, the, like your, your GED qualified uh, Army infantry guys and, and Marines. I mean, nothing against them. They're probably hardworking. They're just not the sharpest tools in the shed. They're there for, a, for job qualification, for a GI Bill, and now they get the um, $250,000 know, payment for servicemen's life insurance to, to their families because people weren't communicating. Wow, that's really sad. I've never heard it articulated like that. That's that's so profoundly unhealthy and so incredibly sad. Um, what what do we do to fix that? What in the world do you do to fix that? It starts at the top. It's all about leadership. It's about coordination. Anytime you've got an organization where you've got a, a bifurcation of of um, effort trying to reach something, <laughs> any any programmers will, or I should say, a lot of programmers or project managers have probably heard the term Conway's law, which basically says that any organization is going to create a a uh, solution that mirrors the organizational structure of the organization itself. So if you have um, competing generals, one of them is a former you know, Green Beret in charge of special forces, Delta and SEALs and all those, and he thinks he's everything. And you have a you know, conventional three-star also, they're going to compete. And, and the, the, so the, the, the resolution is, instead of picking one over the other, we're going to put them both in the field and, and coordinate. <laughs> Coordination doesn't happen unless it's actually forced. So... Um, you end Ooh, up now with- let, now let me let me confront you a little bit with a thought that just occurred to me. What one thing, one thing that could be done to equalize the field um, and raise the overall IQ and competence level of the, you know, what you call the the black shoe uh, forces and so forth. No, I, I, I got to step in real quick. Black shoe is, is a Navy reference to the, the sailors who go to sea. So the, oh, the, okay. the, the Navy officers who, who drive ships are called black shoes as opposed to brown shoes are the aviators or the Airedales. Um, that mm. I, I wanted to clear that up real quick. The, the, the special operators, that's entirely different. Okay. So the, to eliminate this this difference between special operators and the average grunts is reinstating the draft and having you know two-year service mandatory what that would do presumably is that as i was talking about before that the military is no longer something that anyone of of you know any genuine talent and intelligence um, uh, certainly of above average talent and intelligence is sitting there thinking, wow, I, I want to make a career out of being an army officer. I mean, it just, it just isn't done anymore. How, what do we do to raise the overall competence and IQ level of that, you know, larger portion, the non-special operator portion of the, of the armed forces? And is it have a mandatory two-year service and reinstate the draft? And could it not be argued? And again, this is all, you know, pie in the sky, you know, fantasies about after the triumph of the Immaculate Heart and all of that. But can it not be said that mandatory two-year service is in fact a, a good thing for young men to have? That from the age of, you know, 18, 19, 
to 2021, young men are put into, you know, they're put through basic training, first of all, and then they're put into an actual situation where they have to get their ass out of bed in the morning and be and be responsible adult men instead of this, you know, just ongoing, endless childhood and adolescence that men in this culture now have. So I've opened that can of worms. Now you should talk about that, having lived it yourself. I only lived the naval aspect of it, and that was the peacetime Navy. In terms of should everybody have service uh, or, or do some kind of service, I wouldn't argue against it necessarily, but it, it's, you know, what's the point? I mean, what's what's the goal that we're getting at? Is it a glorified jobs program? Is it uh, an actual group of people who want to, um, you know, for lack of a better term, get out there for adventure and kill somebody? I mean, there, we, we definitely need the sheepdogs out there. And mm-hmm. and the special operators, they have their role. And and you mentioned this in a previous uh, podcast, the, the, the movie clip. That was about somebody who was a Navy SEAL. And so we, we definitely need the sheepdogs, but they don't, we shouldn't have them running things. I mean, I, this, this is something hard to under, you know, for me to, to think about. And it is, it is something I've thought a lot about, to be honest, because um, I, I've made the comment to, to his friends. It's like, if, if, if I was 18 again, you know, given the books that I've read about, you know, the special operators, about, you know, Rangers, Delta Force, SEALs, and all these other guys, I'd probably do something stupid like trying to join them. And the older I get, the more I realize that these people are trained to kill. And now that we are in a continual war since 2001, a lot of them actually have. And the psychological effect that comes along from actually doing that, you know, it is unnatural to kill somebody. It, it's in our human nature to not do it. So when you are actively trained to overcome all of your innate decency to kill another human being up close with your own hands, which is something that the majority of the military is not trained to do, not that graphically, not that up close and personal. You begin to not be surprised at the number of, you know, suicides that, that military veterans are, are dealing with, or the fact that somebody comes back from, from uh, doing multiple tours in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they either try to go back or they become soldiers of fortune or go join, um, you know, was it the Kurdish insurgency now in, in, in Syria it's it's on nominally the American side fighting ISIS up up close and personal. I mean, these people almost literally have a death wish because they 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 can't fit into society any other way. Uh, well, they can't fit into society at home anymore. They they they've achieved a a level of you know adrenaline rush and and brotherhood that they will never find any place else other than combat, and they don't know how to deprogram it. Which gets into something else that we had on the on the schedule here about suicide. And, and the emptiness and what's the purpose of life. I mean, in reality, the reason why somebody should be so willing to um, face down and kill an enemy is because of what you're protecting behind you, because of exactly. how much you value life. But if yes. you are empty on the inside, and the only reason you go into a pursuit like this is for the thrill, for the adrenaline, for the rush, and killing somebody's a rush, I, I assume. I have to trust the psychologist on this. I don't have firsthand experience. But... If you've achieved that, if you've lived that, what are you going to do back in civilian America? Go crazy? Become an alcoholic? Well, go to go on drugs? Go to jail? Become- well, let's pull the let's pull the historical lens back though. You have to realize that this business of the vast vast majority of men 
in in a given society, a given Western society, never having seen combat, this is rare in history. Most men up until not too terribly long ago were at some point in their lives, and and for many men it was multiple times in their lives, were conscripted, were called up and went and fought and and saw horrible, horrible, like you were talking about, hand to hand. I mean Forget about this stuff that we're doing now with 50 caliber, you know, with 50 cals and, you know, instantaneously vaporizing people into into hamburger that look at how war was fought up until just really not too terribly long ago. And then realize that war was just constantly going on and that most men engaged in that. Now, what's the difference? Why did those why were those men able to come back? And just re-enter society. And I think you hit hit the nail on the head. I think what we're talking about is that we are in this post-Christian society. And it, the, one of the things that that Christianity allows you to do is that it allows you to psychologically process when things like war happens. You, you, ha- you mean you have a, a psychological mechanism for dealing with a psycho-spiritual mechanism for dealing with this so that you do not turn into a PTSD rage monster who ends up, you know, blowing your own brains out. That was, I'm sure, I'm sure there were men who were horrifically traumatized, obviously, by combat in in the past centuries. No question. I'm not saying that the, it never happened. Oh, yeah. The, but, the term shell shock came out of home. The term shell shock came out of World War One. So exactly. the, the whole idea yeah. of insanity from combat is nothing new. It just, you know, we didn't hear much about it. Yeah, because people were better able to handle it. Men came back into society. They had a proper place. They were able to get back into society, pick up where they left off, go back to work. And then and then you have you have faith in God. And so you're able to look at this and process all this. These people who are running around, who are atheists, who are already probably suffering from some pretty significant, you know, just contemporary Western American narcissism, good old American narcissism. I mean, stuff, bad stuff happens to them. And I, I can't even imagine, I can't even imagine what you would do psychologically or how you would even begin to deal with any of that if you didn't have Jesus Christ in his holy church. I mean, how, how could you even start to reconcile any of these things? I think um, one of the things that I learned and was just so, so distraught by when I was doing the research for my um, Islamic sexuality, a survey of evil video presentation that I did was that a lot of these guys are coming back from Afghanistan and it isn't the combat. It isn't the, you know, the killing (coughs) of, of other male combatants. One of the things that's driving these guys who come back from Afghanistan and really any of the Islamic theaters is that they are they are eyewitnesses to and are asked to turn a blind eye to all of the boy raping that's going on. And that is something that is just driving, you know, American servicemen insane is that, you know, you see some mentally retarded 50 year old goat humping Afghani raping a nine year old boy 
And not only are you not allowed to stop them, you're not allowed to say anything, but you've got to go in 15 minutes later and you're training this guy. That's the guy that you have to train to be, you know, whatever, a autonomous police force or peacekeeping force or whatever it is. And that that is a lot of what the problem is with these guys just going bonkers and then coming home falling apart. It's not the PTSD of necessarily seeing horrific combat. Because if you think about it, I mean, there's some close quarter stuff that's going on, absolutely. But the vast majority of what they're doing is, you know, they're they're shooting at each other a long way away. And so you don't you don't actually see um, in in the sense that you know, think of think of a movie battle scene. Think of Braveheart or you know the Lord of the Rings battle sequences where it's just you know carnage, carnage, carnage right in front of you. There is because of modern technology, there is this the you know, spatial buffer between you know the, the combatants most of the time. What's driving these guys insane is this other stuff is being put into this satanic culture and being asked to, you know, turn a blind eye to it. And that's what's driving a lot of these guys bonkers. And that's when they come home and they can't shake that. I think that's certainly a contributing aspect of it. Um, I was going to say with regard to the, the, the recent celebrity suicides this last week, I made the comment to a friend of mine that these are people who are outwardly successful and inwardly empty. And yeah. when you look at the military uh, folks who have the, the issues with uh, massive amounts of suicide, yeah, I'm sure what you just said definitely plays into it, questioning why were we ever, ever over there, what were we fighting for? But these are people who had no meaning or very little meaning because the world tells them there's no meaning to their life, really, other than to just you know enjoy and have fun and do whatever you want. You know, that's mm-hmm. the whole of the law, do whatever you want. You, you get into combat, which is a compression of human nature and life into 15-minute spans under combat and, and ultimate stress. And you find this, this uh, you know, band of brothers, for lack of sense. Uh, there's there's a, a scene, a really great scene, actually, at the end of the, the movie that was made on, from uh, the book Black Hawk Down, which was otherwise a pretty forgettable movie. But there was a scene right at the end where, where the, one of the guys who plays one of the Delta Force operators is, is, is uh, getting rearmed and getting ready to go back out. And one of, the, one of the other guys says, you're going back out there? Why? And, and he says, you don't get it. We're not out here for democracy or the American flag or anything like that. We're out here for the man next to you. And we still have brothers behind enemy lines. We're going back to get them. That's why we're here. And so when, when you are you know, downrange deployed with these guys, that is your family. That is your, that's something that's, that's real and meaningful to you. And so you have that, that meaning for the time you're over there in combat. And then you combine that perhaps with what you mentioned, you, the, these scenarios we're fighting with these people we're protect, we're doing what, for what purpose. And then when you're finally out for whatever reason, either you got an injury or your time is up and they're not going to renew you, or you decided to not, not re up your contract you're back out in the civilian world and you cannot relate to anybody around you. What's the well, point, and what's the point oh, of going here, on? And, a, and there was never any he, meaning anyway. Nobody, God never entered into the equation for a lot of these people. So why not blow your brains out? Oh, and how about this? How about you go home to your wife and she leaves you and she takes the kids and she gets half of everything and you have to pay her child support for the rest of your life. How about that? And that whole that's a that's a really great point that when they have that, um, you know, band of brothers camaraderie, that that is 
and today, in today's world, that is so much stronger than what marriage is because marriage now has been basically drained of all meaning and certainly all permanence. Um, whereas the band of brothers, the band of brothers dynamic, man, you're, you're exactly right. That is real. And you know that it's real and you, you can look at your brothers on the field, on the field of combat and, and you know, you know that they're not going to do the equivalent of abandon you, no fault, divorce you, and then screw you over for alimony and child support. That 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 just isn't even a possibility because that sort of trust is now almost completely lacking now with you know the the generation of people who would now be be in combat positions in the military that age range that age bracket because marriage has been so completely destroyed and family's been so completely destroyed uh, you you you're absolutely right now think about this think about these guys who you know in world war 2 would go propose to their girl go get married and then, you know, get married on on Saturday and then the next Monday or Tuesday he would go down and he would enlist and thinking he might never make it home. Um, but he, but marriage was still so intact and so strong, relatively speaking, that how many men did that? went, got married, immediately went and enlisted and were shipped off. And they, you know, what got them through the war for a lot of them was the thought that this, this girl, this woman, my wife is waiting for me at home and she is going to be there when and if I get back. And when and if I get back, my wife is going to be there. We are going to continue our marriage because our marriage is still going on. There's, there's zero risk. There's zero risk that this woman is not going to be there waiting for me, that she will have abandoned me or anything else. And that's what got so many of those men, you know, through the war and not just world war two, you know, you watch the Ken Burns civil war documentaries and, you know, the, the letters that these men are writing home to their wives because marriage was permanent. And so you had that, you know, you had the band of brothers dynamic going on, you know, wherever you were deployed to be it, be it, you know, in the civil war, just a few hundred miles away, or during world war two, if you were literally on the other side of the planet, so that band of brothers thing, that's your, that's going on there. You've got that rock and that strength back home. You know, you've got the rock and the strength of your, your wife waiting for you. And if you don't have a wife, you know what? You still just have the American culture in general. So if you're a single guy and you think, okay, I'm going to get out of the, I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to, I'm going to get home alive and I'm going to restart my life in America. And there's going to be something for me there. And then overarching over all of that, what you've got is you've got the church, you've got faith in God. Um, you, you know, we have, we, people used to have at least a, a cursory understanding and belief in, in the notion of original sin. And so when you see other human beings behaving badly, 
You don't slip into this very Calvinistic total depravity. Men are nothing but but animals. You don't slip into that despair. I think that's what's going on with a lot of the guys today who are going into the Muslim countries and being, you know, scandalized into literal insanity by by the animalistic evil activity that they see going on in the Musloid culture. If you don't have faith in God and you don't understand, you know, fallen man and all of this, no, you can't reconcile all of that. And then you start thinking that we're all animals and that I'm an animal too. And I might as well just, you know, do the world a favor and blow my brains out and it'll be, it'll be lights out just like it is when it, when an animal is killed, because that's all we are. That's the scandal of all of that. But then, you know, going back to family, divorce, marriage, you see how all of these dynamics feed in on each other. And so you can absolutely make a very cogent argument that um, the the implementation and institution of no fault divorce takes directly away from the ability of a given society to defend itself. That there, there, there's a clear linkage there. There's a clear linkage there. Now, what's keeping us, what's keeping the United States and the, you know, Western world, what's, what's keeping us going at this point is, is merely technology. That's all it is. If someone else, the Chinese, if someone else catches up to and surpasses us in terms of technology, well, Katie bar the door because our culture and our society is now so, um, so sick and so weak that we can't stand up against, um, a red China with an equal or superior technological, uh, hardware footing in terms of the military. Well, you mentioned, you know, the moral fiber, or maybe this is where I was going with it. And the idea that we don't take divorce and marriage seriously. And one of the ideas that came to mind is the whole idea of shame. It used to be extraordinarily shameful to have to have a, oh, di- yeah. to have a divorce. But yep. now even in this society where divorce happens, you know, kind of like on Tuesday it might rain. Even among, you know, folks like yourself who have never served in the military, you understand how shameful it would be to abandon your brothers or yep. sisters on, on the front line under fire. Yep. cowardice in the face of the enemy. Even if yep. you've never served in the military, you understand that and you have this, you, you understand how shameful that would be. So you have this real, you have the sense of reality. I mean, there's just still developing this idea of, I, I can see where the people who, who are in the military, this is, this is real and they sense it's real, whether or not they can identify and, and define and put their finger on why this is real. And when they come back, rotate back to the States, they, they sense that it's not real for any number of reasons mm-hmm. and they can't wait to go back downrange where the bolts are flying because that's where things make sense. That's right. Wow. This is, this is profound and I did not see this conversation coming at all. I'm really glad we went, we went down this rabbit hole because I think this is a incredibly important point and I hope that it's causing some light bulbs to go on over other people's heads that are listening and, you know, seeing how the attack on marriage is so is so tied to these other dynamics that you wouldn't you wouldn't superficially think that they were attached to. But that's that's why the point of the spear with Satan it, and attacking, attacking society, attacking the church 
is marriage and family, as was prophesied. And that's why, you know, John the Baptist was John the Baptist, and he he died, why? Defending marriage. And why is it that the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist, the anti-John the Baptist, why is it that his attack is going to be, or if this is it right now, if it's currently happening and Bergoglio is the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist, why do you think it is that the point of the spear is marriage and family? Because it speaks to absolutely everything else. The, the family is the foundation of, of society. And if you don't have that, and if a man can't trust his wife, and if a man can't trust his family, um, then your culture is absolutely categorically doomed because it will poison everything else. Well, and bringing the whole idea of the beginning mirrors the end, the alpha to the omega, and, mm. and how you know the the importance of marriage. You know, Christ's beginning of his public ministry was at the the wedding feast at Cana. Uh, mm -hmm. blessing that that was that was the moment in which in, in time when when marriage became a sacrament um and and that was symbolic definitely not lacking in symbology because obviously god and and, and would never do anything that was lacking in symbol in symbology but you know marriage is that critical to human nature mm -hmm. and if you follow the timeline shortly thereafter you have the uh, sermon on the mount and one of the, one of the eight beatitudes blessed are the peacemakers so in the timeline, you look at the beginning of Christ's public ministry. The first thing is, is raising the importance of, of family and marriage. And mm -hmm. very shortly thereafter, the, the, the role of the peacemaker. And that's been applied to military. It's been applied to, you know, a lot of things I don't think it should be. It's, it's the people who avoid having to go to war to begin with, I think, are truly the peacemakers. But when those people fail to do their job, you know, even even those who don't succumb to the suicidal or marriage killing uh, realities that that uh, war brings about or extended military service brings about, you still are rotating people through through a, a, a theater of violence and desensitizing to that. And you either have people who go crazy and 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 um, get into substance abuse or suicide or you have people who. Uh, show themselves to be completely unaffected by that and become the perfect stormtroopers for what's coming next. And there's probably some, you know, precious few in between who who, who really are spiritually grounded and and can appreciate and can turn it back, dial it back down. I've I've wondered whether or not if in a in a truly Catholic society in a truly Christian society, if we had a prolonged war situation, if 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 it wouldn't be the ideal situation that soldiers who come back at the end of war wouldn't go through, say, a six-month retreat in a monastery to deprogram from war and, and to spiritually reground. But the regrounding suggests that it should have been there the whole time. What about people who right. never had anything to begin with? That's exactly the problem, and that's the risk. You you know, reform the man. Well, what if there was nothing? What if there was nothing there before? is putting someone into six months of spiritual retreat is is that what needs to happen well obviously no in a <laughs> in a perfect world you know people are catechized and formed in childhood exactly as it should be you know they're catechized in childhood they're formed in adolescence confirmed um 
avail being availed of all of the sacraments throughout their youth and into their adolescence so that when and if this happens that they are in fact equipped equipped to deal with it um and just going back quickly to what what you mentioned about peace i do have i had an old post about this and i'll look it up and i'll pull it up and it's a picture of um the the revolver that was given to Wyatt Earp by the citizens of Dodge City and it you know emblazoned on the 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 buttstock of this um of this revolver is peacemaker and you know i think it is important to remember that that what peace is is it is it's not the absence of war or or even necessarily the absence of violence. What peace is, is the perfect and total application of, of justice, which is a constitutive quality of God. So, you know, we're, we're of God's perfect justice. So, for example, the, the example that you can give is North Korea. You walk the streets of North Korea and it is quote unquote peaceful. But is that really peace? Well, of course not, because it's a completely unjust society and you know there's there's a line in scripture peace peace but there is no peace and that that was quoted by um oh who's the who gave the nathan hale who who's the famous um i actually recorded a a a recitation of this speech of the american revolutionary who quotes scripture peace peace but there is no peace um so it 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 really is a precision about how you define peace and what it is and what constitute peacemaking. Um, obviously, if you're being if you're being attacked, um, let's say you're a man and you're walking down the street with your wife, and you know other men come up and start attempting to attack and take and rape and beat to death your wife. Well, what do you need to do in order to restore peace to that situation? Well, hopefully you're concealed carrying and you need to draw and fire and stop the men who are attacking your wife. Obviously, that's what you need to do. That is peacemaking, um, restoring back perfect justice and and order. And that oftentimes, sadly, in 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 the world of fallen man, that involves physical violence and that is a manifestation of of peacekeeping. You know, law officers in a good, just law officers in a good, just society, they keep the peace. They are peacemakers. And that's why they have a billy club and a taser and hopefully a sidearm and all kinds of other things. Because when when, you know, there is not justice and there is this this um, criminal violence going on, the onus is that it is their job to restore peace and order with physical violence if necessary. So, And this goes along with the theme of meekness, that peace being the balance with, with justice, but also meekness is that, that power and capacity power to completely destroy whatever you need to, but having it all under control at the same time. Yep. Exactly. And, and to the to what you were saying there is is having the concealed carry and being able to put two between in center mass and one between the eyes if you have to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a story of, of uh, a law enforcement officer I know locally who had a situation where he was uh, he, he drew down on somebody and, and he would have been he would have been legally justified. It would have been a good shooting had he pulled the trigger. But he saw in the eyes of the person that they changed their mind as soon as they realized he was willing to do what was necessary to stop the threat. 
Yep. And that is power under control. Yep. He's you know, meek. He, he would, he He's, would have been very, he would have been justified in planting the guy, but he didn't. Yep. And that in real time to be able to discern that in the moment, um, when, you know, presumably in a situation like that, where everything's just going a billion miles an hour and your life is flashing before your eyes and you're scared and everything else to have that, that presence of mind and that meekness power under control. Um, that's, that's really uh, a testament to that man's, um, uh, goodness. It, it, really, there's no other word for it. That is, that is a manifestation of, of, deep interior goodness to be able to deal with a situation like that. And it's, I wish we could think of another word for meek, um, in English, it just so happens. And this is, I don't know if this happens in other languages or not. I'd have to look it up, but just the fact that meek rhymes with weak, it's, it's just that it's just the coincidental fact that meek and weak rhyme that so many people in the English speaking world think that meekness means weakness. Um, and of course, you know, obviously the ultimate example of meekness is, is our Lord himself, who is omnipotent. He's, he's literally omnipotent. And yet look at how he holds back, you know, hearkening back to the example that you, you have just given, um, our Lord would be so completely justified in, in just greasing all of us, greasing the whole thing. But, you know, his, the right hand of power, he, it's being, he's holding it back and he's not greasing us because apparently he sees that look in the eye that, you know, the, the fellow in the anecdote that you just told that, that he saw. And so, you know, the finger is on the trigger, but it doesn't squeeze it off because it sees that apparently there's something there and there's a reason, there's a reason not to shoot. And so, you know, I'm convinced that that's where we are in society right now that, you know, there's our Lord with <laughs> the right hand of power, you know, the backhand pulled back and ready to go. And he just keep seeing there's some reason um, why he isn't doing it quite yet. And I suppose that that means the onus is on us to make sure that with each day that we get, that we're doing something to, to make, to make that extra day that our Lord doesn't grease all of us as we so richly deserve, make it worth it. You know, make bring someone else to the Lord, bring someone else into the church. Someone else repents, goes to confession. That that's clearly what he's after. He's got to, he's got to be after more people converting and reverting. And so we need to make sure that every single day that we're given, when he doesn't grease us, that we we prove him right, and we say yes, this was a day when at least somebody tried to do something to bring, to bring somebody back to you. And that, that first and foremost, it might be yourself, you know, maybe he held, he held his right hand of justice back today so that I could go to confession today, you know, start with yourself and then work, work out from there. Don't forget your mother in this case. And I mean, our lady, especially our lady, uh, through her apparitions at Akita mentioning that, she is holding back the arm of yeah. justice of God, but she's not going to do it much longer if humans keep sinning the way they do. And on the topic of meekness, I would be horribly remiss if I didn't mention the feast of today. It's the Sacred Heart. 
learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart. And mm-hmm. in, in the heart of Jesus, you will find an infinite, uh, an infinite well of, of mercy, grace, contemplation. I don't have enough adjectives. Um, yeah. Love, infinite, infinite, burning, burning love. And if you sit and think about what infinite, burning love is and think about that concept, you'll realize very quickly that weak, W-E-A-K, that word cannot be used. That word cannot be ascribed to that in any way. Meek, under control of, oh yes, of course, you've got this infinite throbbing charity completely under control, holding the universe together, sustaining every human being, et cetera, et cetera, on and on and on, um, perfectly under control, but, but just love, burning, burning, burning love. And just sit and meditate on that. Or I, I, should we not use the word meditate anymore? Has that been ruined by you know, pagans and Buddhists. Can we even say, I, I guess, contemplate, pray on it, con- contemplate, contemplate what that means. But yeah, this entire month, the entire month of June is, is the month of the sacred heart of Jesus. And so, yes, this is something that all of us should be thinking about. What, what exactly does this mean? What does infinite love mean? What does it mean to us? What does it mean in terms of the law? Um, what is the interaction there? Does infinite burning love mean that we can do absolutely anything? And he's just going to say, oh, if that's okay, I-, I don't mind. You be you. I like you just the way you are. Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. That's that's satanic heresy. That's from the pit of hell. And you can tell because anti-Pope Bergoglio says things like that. Um, well, let's, let's but, get away from him for a minute and... and, and, and let's look at um in in terms of Stay all big back. <laughs> in terms of in terms of meekness um if you want to draw a an american pop culture reference although it's a bit dated now it's john wayne he's your he's your poster child for for meekness he's power under control it's not casper mm-hmm. milk toaster crying out loud it's somebody who's got the ability to kill every black hat in town but he has he has it under control always mm-hmm. And and he's always trying. He's trying to save the women and children all the time. Where where does Clint Eastwood fit into that? Is he is he less under control? The the Eastwood oeuvre, or what would you say? Is he know. also when, a manifestation? When, when it of all that? went when when everything went into color, that was when uh, Hollywood was doing drugs. So I don't know if that really still works anymore. Okay, all right. Too and bad. I, I know <laughs> there were the the later John Wayne were in color too. You know that's yeah. why the color that's why the the, the Quiet Man was so pretty is because you had all the the beautiful green of Ireland. But still, and that's another yeah. good example. You know, power under control. You know that and and letting it out for a just reason at the end. That that's a that's a great uh, thought exercise there. Okay, so our advice in terms of this is um, like the Andy Griffith Show, John Wayne best in black and white. <laughs> Oh, the Quiet Man was pretty good. Yes, but the Quiet Man is kind of like you know the Wizard of Oz of 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 westerns, you know. Yeah, it, it was a non John Wayne role, but at the same time, it, it's 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 like a line I saw in some other movie. John Wayne plays the same character in every movie. He plays John Wayne. Yes, that's exactly right, <laughs> and God bless him. <laughs> well, 
this has been a very interesting conversation. And um, only looking at the half. clock, I think I think we're at an hour, aren't we? We're at uh, an hour and eight, almost an hour and seven minutes. And we've only kind of hit one and a half topics here. We didn't even get into Valerie Jarrett and uh, her connection to hardcore communism. Uh, we didn't really get into celebrity suicides much. Well, we, we kind of did. Yeah, we can save some of this for next time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah let's, Roseanne, let's go ahead and call Roseanne it and wrap said, this up. Roseanne Barr said some stupid things and she was uh, apparently going to, going to take some, uh, <laughs> going to do some interviews and talk about it, but she kind of bailed out of that. There were, did I send you the link about, uh, army rangers flying on Ambien? Oh yes. Yes, absolutely. I yeah. did not realize there is an entire website or multiple websites devoted to people doing just absolutely bat poop, crazy things when they're on Ambien. So Roseanne saying that she was tweeting on Ambien. I don't completely doubt the story. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of well, yeah, kind of stupid. I don't either. But. I um I heard had somebody tell me years and years ago when Lunesta, which is also a, a sleep aid, but like hardcore, when Lunesta first came out, that it was a, it was a married couple and they had a Lunesta, and so they cut it in half, and then I think they cut the half in half so that each one of them took a quarter of a Lunesta because they were flying from the West coast to the East coast. And they just wanted to, they just wanted to sleep on the flight. And apparently that knocked them for such a loop that they, they needed help getting off the plane. I mean, these, these sleeping pills, man, I wouldn't touch any of that with a 10 foot pole when I, I have a tendency, I'm very much a night, a night owl and I have a tendency to get turned upside down really quickly. If I stay up reading too long, you know, the next thing I know it's, it's five 30 and you know, at that point you might as well just stay up. I think I inherited this because my grandmother was exactly the same way. She stayed up all night. Um, but anyway, you know, if you're, if you have responsibilities and stuff during the day and you got to get up, you can you know, there's a time where you say, look, I've got, I've got to fix this. And I learned a long time ago that if you just go to Walgreens or whatever, you can buy pills, little teeny tiny pills that are just the, whatever the active ingredient in, um, cold medicines that make you drowsy. I don't even know what it is. Um, well, I mean, like if you take Sudafed, any, any of the cold medicines that make, that have the side effect of making you drowsy. I think Apparently, they, a mild stimulant, actually. Oh, is it? Oh, well, whatever, whatever it is, the the drowsy stuff. They can they can pull that out, and they they have pulled it out. It's dirt cheap, and you know you just take two of these little itty bitty tiny pills, and it's non habit forming, and you know it'll it'll put it'll you go to bed and it'll put you to sleep if you need to go to sleep at 11 o'clock at night or whatever and you've been staying up till five for several days and you need to reset i would never ever ever there's nothing that could happen to me that would make me go and get a prescription for lunesta ambient any of that stuff that stuff is just crazy and yeah people do things and they black out and they can't remember anything, that's terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying to think that you could be awake, conscious, doing stuff and and have absolutely no memory of it or no, no consciousness of it after the fact. That is bad business 
And I can't imagine that there's any level of insomnia. Now, and maybe, maybe I've never been a person who's been awake for four consecutive days or anything like that. But good grief at that point, check, check yourself into a hospital. Don't, don't get these terrible, awful, horrible drugs. And, you know, I'm, I'm no, I'm no apologist for Roseanne Barr or anything. I think we've all known, and I think it's been public knowledge for decades now that she struggled with mental illness. She struggled with, you know, prescription drug use like this. Um, she's, she's not, uh, she's not stable. <laughs> she's she, not she stable. Has said she's as much. not sound. Yeah. She's not stable. She's not sound. This reboot of this show was, you know, let's be honest. This was a revolving around the lesbian, Sarah Gilbert. Sarah Gilbert was the one who was, who I think played Darlene. She was the one who's driving all this. She's a militant lesbian. They had a character in the show, who was supposed to be um, Sarah Gilbert, the character Darlene's child, who is about a nine-year-old boy, who they were dressing up as a drag queen. Okay, that is the sexual abuse of that child actor. Having a nine-year-old boy dress up and pretend to be, pretend to be a drag queen, um, that is in and of itself the sexual abuse of a child, the boy actor. Um, this whole Roseanne thing, I, I, I don't care if, if she's saying things like, I voted for Trump, blah, 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 blah. This is nothing admirable. This should go away. Nobody should be supporting this. Roseanne needs help. Roseanne needs to get into detox. Roseanne needs to convert to the one true faith. The whole lot of them need to con convert to the one true faith. But just because someone, you know, says a few pro-Trump words, folks, you can't, again, you can't be sucked in to this bizarre, you know, almost rah-rah sports team dynamic wherein, you know, someone, someone quote unquote, wears the colors and we're just going to, we're just going to file in and go all in behind them. Um, I think it's, it's probably a, a very good thing that this show is no longer on the air, but watch out because the lesbian Sarah Gilbert and the rest of the cast are actively trying to get the thing rebooted, having written Roseanne out of it as presumably having died or something like that. And they want this thing to continue and go on. And think think what that will be then. It will be a purely leftist thing, pushing the sodomy, pushing the, you know, the sexual abuse of the children, the transsexualism, all of this stuff. And uh, this is this is not a healthy dynamic. So I don't know. That's this, my rant. This is a little strange because I thought that Roseanne was supposed to be the the poster child for the pro Trump right wing TV show right now because I don't know why. I just I've heard that from different sources. I haven't watched it. I don't really care. But they've got a tranny nine year old and a and a lesbian mom. This doesn't sound yep. like Trump dynamics. And no, I, I had like also heard that this is the first time in twenty four years that that ABC had a number one rated show and they didn't hesitate to cancel it. Yep, exactly. Um, I almost, you know, looking back at Roseanne Barr's history, she's 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 a far leftist. I mean, she's a, she's a, obviously a pro-abort. I almost, I almost look at this as like, um, what's, what are the name of those people that always show up? Lyndon LaRouche supporters. 
that they're like so far to the left that they circle back around somehow, you know? <clears throat> and then the Lyndon LaRouche people would always show up at the tea party things and stuff like that. Oh, and that, then, you it's know, like, it's like Ron Paul and that uh, congressman from Ohio. They, they agree on a lot. Oh, 90- beam, beam me up, Mr. Speaker. What was his name? Trafficant. James no, no, Trafficant. No, 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 no. That was the guy from Illinois who went to jail <laughs> and rightfully so. No, the, the, I can't remember the guy. Um, he was a congressman from somewhere in Ohio. He ran for president a couple times. I should know this guy's name. Oh, well, somebody will figure it out. Or Not I might remember. Trafficant ended up being sent to prison. Oh, that was he long was, ago. It was 20 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. That was in the 90s. Oh, um, I've got Google. Hold on a second. Um, congressman. Not Ohio. Kasich. No. Not Kasich. No. Yeah. President... Kucinich. Uh, oh, Dennis Kucinich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. There, it, it, that's my whole political spectrum theory is that it's a torus. It's a donut. And if you go far enough to the extremes on either side, because it's a donut, you end up meeting back around and touching each other. You know, um, so super duper f- far right, total complete anarchy is basically the same thing as the farthest left totalitarianism because it's exactly the same dynamic because what it means is that the biggest thug with the most guns sets policy and wins and rules the society, whether that's called far-right anarchy or far-left um, totalitarianism. It's, it's basically, functionally, exactly the same thing. So, yeah, I think that's what's going on there. And, you know, let's... Let's pray that the whole Roseanne thing just goes away. Just goes away. I think she's probably ready to retire anyway, so. Oh, yeah, she's got to be pushing 70. And, I mean, that's the thing that I don't understand. You know, you've got tens of millions of dollars. And you could, these people could just do anything. And, I I mean, I know what I would do. I'd go. I'd go endow and set up some contemplative monastery somewhere and um, I'd probably just, you know, live live in a contemplative contemplative monastery like that, and you know, <laughs> try to try to fight off the Bergolians coming to to shut us down, you know. But I do I do something worthwhile like that, and these people they just got to keep picking scabs and can't leave well enough alone and can't go away, can't do anything. It just seems to me they just can't do anything worthwhile and i'm not saying everybody has to go fund a contemplative monastery or anything like that but not come that there's on. anything wrong with it if you can do it not that there's anything wrong with it if you can do it exactly well I, we were talking about before the show uh talk making this one rated r for religious but uh i think this is just social the, the social commentary episode yeah and and you know i like the military angle that was a really really good conversation so let's put this one in the can my friend Okay, let's do that. Uh, if you have feedback for the Barnhart podcast, email address for the podcast is podcast at barnhart.biz. Uh, masses for ends benefactors are every day of the week. So if you are hearing this on, well, if you're hearing it, there's a mass set for the benefactors today. And yes. one tomorrow and one yesterday and every day. Uh, every day. Yep. The Barnhart podcast is a production of Superdorm Media. If you found something of value in this podcast or previous episodes and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com slash donate for more details. And that's what Richard, Donald, Carmela, and PMJ did. Thank you very much. And I didn't mention anything about uh, Tiny Princess because there's really no news, and that's good news in the sense mm-hmm. that 
Yep. <laughs> we didn't have to take her to the hospital or anything like that. Although we did have a minor scare for about 30 minutes there for a minute. But uh, no, she's she's doing as well as she's going to do, I think. So thank you, everyone who who, have, who has sent uh, emails and, and said that you're, you're praying for us. Um, it, it really means a lot. And we, we know it. It. We know it makes a big a big deal. Uh, it makes a big impact, uh, and, and and things would not have gone so smoothly otherwise. Not not that it's smoothly. I mean, operating on three hours of sleep is not <laughs> smooth any day of the week. But um, it yeah, the power of prayer can't be understated. So thank you very much. Absolutely. And I know you got something to say about uh, Matthew seventeen twenty. Well, always Matthew seventeen twenty, fasting two days a week, that Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-pope and the whole thing be nullified, that Ratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only pope for, lo, these last five years and all the way back to his valid election in 2005, that Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, die in a state of grace and achieve the beatific vision, and that Ratzinger repent, die in a state of grace and achieve the beatific vision. I'm fasting twice a week for the I'm doing Tuesdays and Fridays, but whatever you can do, because remember our Lord said, these ones you can only get rid of by prayer and fasting. And as we've mentioned also, if you can do the fasting, it sounds so Spartan, so hardcore, so ancient, but I keep coming across articles having nothing to do with spirituality. Coming, mm-hmm. It's in, in my tech news, for crying out loud, uh, in, in hacker news, it's coming across the, the benefits of intermittent fasting, which is pretty much what you're doing here. Although you're doing the 24 mm-hmm. hour fast, but the, the 18, six, uh, fast, if, you know, for people who typically eat three to seven meals a day, which is the typical American, uh, if you can do fasting for 18 hours, that's, you know, you, you eat from noon till six and then you don't eat till the next noon. Uh, you will have massive health benefits from that alone. And you probably will lose weight too. And let's face it, Americans can stand to lose some pounds. Indeed. <laughs> Amen. And it's it it isn't hard. It doesn't take it doesn't take very long to get used to it at all. And in fact, I just read a very challenging piece and maybe we can put this in show notes for the next episode. I just read a very challenging piece. Now you want to talk about rigorous and hardcore laid out a pretty compelling argument and was discussing about whether or not um whether or not receiving the Eucharist, having not observed the fast from midnight, is mortal sin. Now, again, I'm not saying that that's where I am, but this piece, it laid out an intelligent case, and I have actually become more diligent myself after reading this, and I generally go to Mass in the evening, and I generally observe the Eucharistic fast from midnight, and then eat dinner after I go to Mass. That's typically what my schedule works out to. Um, so maybe we can talk about that on the next episode. I think that's a, I think it's a really interesting question. I've got it written down. I look forward to talking about it. And uh, lest anybody have any scruples for the moment, the actual law is one hour fast. The recommendation almost universally is if you can do it, do a three hour fast. Yeah, three. It, it's one hour fast on food. It's still a three hour fast on alcohol. So even though liquids are one hour. Or water is, I don't think there's even any fast for that period, or technically speaking, medicines, there's no te- not technically any fast. But alcohol, unless it's legitimately uh, medicinal, it's a three-hour fast. So, you know, don't, don't be overly lax here. We're receiving Jesus. Indeed. Uh, well, we'll, we'll, save, we'll save this conversation for the next episode. Yeah, okay. Until next time, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Anne. Thanks, guys. God bless. God bless.